We hope this explanation of God's Word enriches your life. To help you understand the audience for this talk, we suggest you read the context material on the About Us page. Please read also our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material from philipjensen.com. The following sermon was given at St. Matthias Family Church, where Philip Jensen was senior minister. Last week I spoke on the subject that neither you wanted to hear nor I wanted to hear, so speak on, that is, the wrath of God. This week I speak on a topic that you want to hear and I want to speak on, that is, the kindness of God. This has got to be as nice as the other one is awful. And to be able to commend the fact of God's kindness to you and to my own heart and encourage us by these words is a wonderful thing. But the kindness of God is the kind of topic that preaches itself. The kindness of God, God is kind, I will now sit down and we'll have a very short meeting today and a very long morning tea. That is because it's a kind of acceptable, politically correct, appropriate thing to be said about God. But as it is found in the New Testament, it comes in such an unusual place and in such an unusual way that it will surprise you because it is to be found in the righteous judgment of God which is not where we think of the kindness of God. We think the kindness of God is one thing, the wrath and judgment of God will be a completely different thing. We think the kindness of God is that God is soft and gentle and woolly and fluffy and, and well, like a sheep's cloth to a child, God is going to be kind to us. But that kind of crass sentimentality is not what the Bible is speaking about and will not stand us in the test of time when we go through difficulties. Because when we go through difficulties, we'll want that soft, woolly kind of comfort feeling of the kindness of God and we'll be faced with the harsh realities of life. So we're going to understand the kindness of God. We must understand it as it comes to us. So let's return to our friend Habakkuk, for he is the key to this whole passage in Romans. Paul is explaining uh, Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 which he quotes in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, the righteous will live by faith. And he is expounding and explaining this concept, which is a kind of key phrase for opening and reminding us of that whole prophecy of Habakkuk that we've read over the last three weeks, or two weeks and today. Now, for you and I, Habakkuk's message is a particularly uncomfortable one because we live in the instant generation. Not just instant coffee at... It's fast food, isn't it? I love McDonald's. And not just because I like all things to do with uh, uh, unhealthy eating and fat and sugar and that kind of thing, but I love the idea, the very idea that comes out of statistical analysis whereby they can cook the food before you've even thought of asking for it. That it's already there. It's like God. Before I ask, he answers. So is McDonald's. Before I've even considered the possibility of eating, it is already being cooked for me. And as soon as I think of it, as I pass by and call in, not that I do anymore, of course, but as soon as I think of it and call by, there it is for me. Now, that is instant. That is fantastic. That is the way to live. So while we keep on saying the old platitude, patience is a virtue, we don't have much use for patience today. We are a particularly impatient age and generation. We even pray for patience to come to us quickly. For in a fast-moving city, 
however tired and frazzled the speed of life makes it, we city dwellers thrive on the excitement and the energy that the speed expresses. Now Habakkuk's message is about waiting and that's really uncomfortable. See Habakkuk wants wrath, sorry Habakkuk wants justice in a corrupt world, the corruption he sees all around about him. And God promises to give him this wrath, to give him this punishment in the here and now by sending the Babylonians to conquer God's people. For in that terrible time of Judah's destruction by the Babylonians will be the punishment of God. But Habakkuk knows that the Babylonian conquest of Judah cannot be the final judgment of God for the Babylonians are worse than the Jews. How can their conquest be God's final justice? And the message from God to Habakkuk is not only by the Babylonians will I punish, but also wait. Wait for the real justice. Wait for the end time. Wait for the final judgment of God. This is not the final justice. Wait in faith for the end. When God's justice will finally be revealed when evil will not triumph but will be put down even especially the conquerors like Babylon who are so puffed up with their own arrogance and control of the universe but in fact are corrupt are destructive they think they're strong and wise and powerful but they are foolish immoral idolaters who will in the end be destroyed and so the prayer of chapter 3 which we just read a few moments ago the prayer which seeks mercy in wrath, the prayer which recognises the loss of everything of this world is still not the end. It's still not the final state of justice. Though there be no fruit on the vines, though everything I have lost to the Babylonians, yet I will still wait for God. I'll still rejoice in him. I'll still wait for him to fulfil his promises in the end. Now, Paul picks up this teaching on Habakkuk and declares in chapter 1, verse 18, that the wrath of God is now. The wrath of God is now being revealed from heaven in the affairs of humans. It's now being revealed against all ungodliness, which is so prevalent in the corrupt world around about us, which we can read in our newspapers, hear on the radio, see in the television and find in our own hearts, in our neighbourhood, in our family. God's wrath is now being revealed by his giving us up to godlessness, giving us up to ungodliness. The universal wickedness of society and of the nations is not a sign that God has lost control of the world. Rather, it is part of God's punishment on our sinfulness. He has let humans have their way. And their way is antisocial. Their way is anti-human. But who are we talking of here? See, the passage doesn't mention Babylonians anymore and it doesn't even mention the Jews and the non-Jews. The Babylonian background to Habakkuk about rulers and wise people in the context of Paul is the context of the Greeks and the Jews. They were the conquerors, they were the arrogant rulers who didn't need God. 
But yet, who is he speaking of here? Chapter 2 introduces the idea of the judgment of God. For his wrath will be exercised finally by justice. And therefore it is against the people who perpetrate the crimes. Look at verse 2. Now we know that God's judgment is against those who do such thing is based on truth. The such things that are mentioned there are the things that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 29 following. They've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful, invent ways of doing evil, disobey parents, senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Against us, against humans, against us in all our sinfulness, our antisocial behaviour, our godlessness and our wickedness, we know that God's judgment, chapter 2, verse 2, against those who do such things is based on truth because God's judgment is based on truth. Our courts don't know everything. Our courts, when they come to judge, try and gain the information they can in the fairest, just fashion, try and not be persuaded by irrelevant materials, try and exclude the prejudices out so that they can only deal with the facts but the courts do not know everything our judgments are not complete nor completely based on truth but God's judgment against evil will be based on truth God's judgment will include the scripture says every idle word we've uttered that's a horrific thought when you think about it, isn't it saying nothing of the fact that it's an enormous amount of uh, words that have been uttered it's the idle ones not the ones that we've thought about worked out I mean I've worked out what I'm going to say today it's all written out here one way or another I've worked it out carefully so as to make sure that what I'm saying is right but it's the idle words that are going to be judged the ones that you haven't had time to think about and to make sure you get right therefore the ones that really express in a sense what's on your heart isn't it that really reveal the kind of character the Freudian slips of life every idle word is to be judged by God Every thought and motivation of the heart, we're taught in 1 Corinthians, is going to be made clear, is going to be the basis of this judgment. Even the thoughts and motivations of the heart that we do not understand ourselves, for the heart is desperately deceitful, isn't it? We catch ourselves every now and then in our own deceit. All our own deviousness, it's all going to come out and therefore God's judgment against wickedness based on truth God's judgment must be impartial if it is to be based on truth if it's against, to be the, against the perpetrators of all crimes then it has to be impartial which you see in verse 6 God will give to each person according to what he has done you see in verse 11 for God does not show favouritism well, given that this is how God will judge the world, what about our judgments in the here and now? Firstly, and fundamentally, we must recognise how hypocritical they are. For the very things of which we accuse other people are the things that we ourselves do, that we ourselves are guilty of. Look at verse 1 there. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, 
For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. There is a virtue in hypocrisy. It's better than shamelessness. Shamelessness has lost all sense of right and wrong, doesn't care anymore. The hypocrite still believes in justice, still believes in some standard, still will want to say that behaviour is wrong. It's just that when the hypocrite says that behaviour is wrong, he's usually pointing at somebody else when he himself is guilty of the self-same thing. There is the hypocrisy and we have it. The hypocrites are self-condemning for we're all guilty of doing terrible terrible wrongdoing who is so naive amongst us so self-deceived as to think that we will be able to stand before the judgment seat of God as innocence of all charges and yet that is often the problem with our judgment of others that problem of self-deception that problem that I'd want to call avoidance thinking because of verse 3 so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and you do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? For we think in our recoiling horror at what others have done that somehow we are still moral because after all we recoil from it, don't we? And because we are still moral we think that we are above them and above all that. For God could see we are better, we're a moral kind of person at least I haven't done that. At least I'm not like him. As if I haven't done it or wouldn't do it given the opportunity, given the pressure, if I was standing in his shoes. But it's worse than just self-deception. It's avoidance thinking. It's worse than avoidance thinking. It's showing contempt, we're told, Look at verses 3 and 4 again. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? Verse 4, you'll see from the top of the outline, is the particular verse I want to draw your attention to. For to despise, to scorn, to look down upon, to show contempt... For God's kindness is what we're engaged in. That is what you do whenever you pass judgment on others over things of which we're all guilty. Have you been following the 2UE saga of recent times? Depends which part of the media you listen to. If you listen to a part of the media that's involved with 2UE, you don't hear about it much, but if you listen to their enemies, then you hear about it day after day. The, the saga of the, the radio commentators, the, the, the John Laws and, and company who, who have been paid for the comments they've made, who it would seem from the radio listener as if they are just making their heartfelt beliefs and comments, but in fact they have been paid enormous amounts of money by banks and other organisations in order to say what is being said. And in every kind of media report that I have read of it, heard of it, seen of it, there has been a great tut-tutting, a great uh, shaking of the heads of the immorality and decadence of these greedy men 
and it brings in me that same sense of condemnation. They have prostituted their opinions and they have undermined public confidence in public media. Have you with me condemned these greedy men? And have you never been greedy yourself? Have you never bent the truth yourself? Have you never spoken in order to please other people things that were not exactly right? Are you really any different? Hypocrisy is normal in us. We just don't like thinking of it that way. Hypocrisy is what other people are, which is itself our hypocrisy. But what is a little surprising in our verse for this morning, verse 4, is the introduction of the idea of the kindness of God. For the passage is about the wrath of God and the judgment of God, and yet he says that we are despising the kindness of God. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness? Tolerance, patience, not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. See, where is the kindness of God to be seen? How can you see his kindness in his justice and his wrath? Notice again verse 4 carefully. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience? God's kindness is part of his delaying patience. His kindness is that he has not punished us. He has not punished us all. He hasn't punished us completely. He hasn't punished us already. For we already deserve all the punishment of God and yet we have not received all the punishment of God. Oh, the Babylonians have come. The Babylonians have come and punished willful, sinful Judah, but not totally. Not utterly, not completely. Oh, certainly the crops have gone and the fields have gone, and, but they haven't been utterly destroyed for God. Sorry about that. For God has, for God has continued the people of Jerusalem, the people of Judah, in slavery, but continued, continued for another day. Another day when the Babylonians would be punished and the Jews released. The Babylonians came and punished willful, sinful Judah. That was the work of God justly punishing them, but that was not the final, full, complete justice and wrath of God. That was God patiently warning them, patiently rebuking them, patiently teaching them, patiently correcting them, patiently disciplining them. And in so doing, God was being patient and forbearant and tolerant for justice would require the total destruction to take place, not only of Jerusalem but also of Babylon and not only of pagan Babylon but also of God's holy city, Jerusalem. Yet God would endure their corruption and their wickedness and their godlessness and their irreligion 
their suppression of the truth and their idolatrous immorality, God put up with it all as God has continued to put up with it to this day. Why? For what reason would God put up with the ongoing evil of the world? It's not because he doesn't mind evil. It's not because evil doesn't hurt him. It's not because he's not offended at evil. It's not because he's not righteous. Listen to what Habakkuk said in his first chapter. He said to God, Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? See, here is the problem of people who are the righteous God living in a wicked world. How can you, God, who are righteous, put up with a world like this? If you are all righteous and all powerful, why don't you fix up this world? God can. God will. But to do so is to bring this world to an end. And to bring this world to an end is to bring to an end any opportunity for repentance, any opportunity for forgiveness, any opportunity for salvation. So how and why does God put up with our godless wickedness? Verse 4, Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience? Look at the end of this verse now. Not realising that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. God's reason for holding back his final, just, complete judgment of this world, God's reason for continuing to show mercy in his wrath is to give us the opportunity to repent. That is to change our minds and to change our minds so much that we change our way of life, to change our hearts, to live in an opposite direction, to to turn around, to give up godlessness and wickedness and turn back to him while we may, before it's too late, before we meet our judge and our judgment. And here is human stupidity at its greatest. For instead of seeing God's kindness, instead of seeing and responding in repentance with gratitude in our hearts that while there is still an opportunity and that there is an opportunity, we humans stubbornly go on in our wickedness, in our unrepentant hearts, even blaming God for the mess the world's in, even claiming in our philosophical wisdom that the good sovereign God cannot even exist because how can there be suffering in the world if God who is good and sovereign rules over it all? And so we turn the very problem of God's kindness in leaving us in this sinful world into an argument against God's existence. His kindness, our stupidity. Not realising that his patience with this suffering world is more painful to the long-suffering God who endures our stupid immorality and godlessness than it is to us. Not realising the enormity of his kindness in punishing us and yet not fully, in leaving us to our own devices, but not finally destroying us. 
So Romans chapters 1 and 2, the second half of chapter 1 in particular and the opening of chapter 2, explain to us why, the why and how of now. Point 6 on the outline. Funny point, I couldn't work out how to say it more clearly. That is now in this age, in this age of Babylon, in this age of Rome, in this age of Sydney, now, in the now time. It explains to us why the world is in such a mess. It explains to us why the world continues without God's final judgment. It explains to us why and how we are to act while we wait for that judgment to come. It explains to us how the righteousness of God is revealed now. Let me take those points in turn. A to D. D's been chopped off. A. Why the world is in such a mess. Well, why is it? I mean, God is God. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. Why is the world in such a mess? It's because God is angry with our godlessness and wickedness. It's not in such a mess just because we're wicked. It's in such a mess because God is angry with us being wicked and therefore is, has handed us over and is handing us over to our wickedness. We are not in control. God is in control. The reason why the world is full of the immorality and corruption it is is because God is angry with our immorality and corruption and therefore has given us free reign to be as corrupt as we wish to be, to be as immoral as we want to be. That's why it's in the magnitude of the mess that it is in and why it never seems to get better. I pondered this century this morning as I was contemplating writing an essay on a totally different subject about Sunday school attendances and about the differences between children in, born in 1900 and the difference and the children born in 2000. And so I thought, well, what's happened to the children between 1900 and 2000? What, what would a child of 1900 face and what do they face in 2000? Oh, it's been an incredible century, hasn't it? Motor cars, radios, TVs, aeroplanes, I mean, all the things that have happened. I mean, some of those things occurred late 19th century, but universal motor car, that kind of idea in our society, that you build houses with garages, not stables. I mean, that kind of idea. Huge changes have happened in our society. And then I thought, yes, those ones who were born around 1900, they hadn't gone through the First World War or the Second World War, the Korean War, the Vietnam War. They hadn't gone through Timor, Rwanda. They hadn't gone through Serbia yet. They hadn't gone through... They hadn't gone through... They, this century has been a pretty bad one, hasn't it? This one that's just gone, or it's, we're in the last year, depending how you count. And it's seen the rise and the fall of the communist state. It's seen the rise and the fall of fascism. Lots happened in this last century, hasn't it? And around 1900, there was this liberal idea, it was called, of the goodness of humanity and the rising of civilization up till the great high point of humans finally in control of the world and creating the kingdom of God here on earth. That was before they went through the 20th century, which demonstrated that humans are not in control, humans are not fundamentally good, and we haven't established the kingdom of God on this earth, more like the kingdom of Satan on this earth. 
Why is the world in such a mess? Because God keeps giving us up to our own immorality. Well, if it is this bad, why does it still continue? Why do the world continues without God's final judgment? And the answer is because, of chapter 2, verse 4, it tells us, because of his kindness and patience and long-suffering tolerance. For he could rightly demand full justice right now. But that would mean the destruction of all people right now. And so, out of his love for us, he is waiting for the full delivery of his wrath. And his waiting leads us to repentance. His waiting is to turn us back while we may. Which leads then, thirdly, to why and how we should act as we wait for the judgment. And here there are two groups of people, two answers, both of which I guess can be here this morning, so let me give them both to you. Firstly, and obviously, how should we live? Repentantly. While we can, before the awful day that God himself delays to bring, we should turn back and get right with God. We should seek forgiveness and mercy. It may be that God who is kind and patient will also be merciful and forgiving. So if there is anyone here today who has not yet turned back to God, I mean you've turned back enough to or turned up to a church meeting at least once, at least once in your life, if you've started at all to turn back to God, turn back to God properly, fully from your heart. Turn back now and do so. Come and seek his help and his assistance. Ask us. Ask the staff, talk to Phil, talk to Jane, come and see me, but find out now about repentance while there is still the opportunity. But there is a second group, a second answer to why and how to act now as we wait for the day of judgment. That is, what about that group of people who have already repented, who have already turned back to God? How now are we to act? Well, we must continue to repent. For repentance is not something that I can only do once in my life. Repentance is something I need to continue to be doing. Our sinfulness seems to know no end, does it? And our repentance must know no end before the Lord returns. So we must now keep on repenting, but more than that, we now live in the light of the knowledge of God's kindness and of the reason for the delay of the judgment of the world. We now know that the reason why this world continues is only to provide opportunity for people to repent. The reason we got to 2000 and God didn't come back in 1999 or 1995 or 1945, the reason why God has yet given us the year 2000 is so as to give time and opportunity for people to repent in the year 2000. Apart from people's repentance, the world would finish immediately. The reason the world goes on is that people might repent. 
So the overruling concern for our lives and time now should be the repentance of the nations. This is the season for calling the world to repent. This is the season for world evangelisation. This is the season to go out into all the world, to go to our neighbours and our friends, our family, to go to our work colleagues, to go to whomever we love and tell them of the need to repent now while there is still opportunity. To call on them to repent while the kindness of God delays the drop of God. But there's one last point that is in Paul's mind. It's point D, which is not on the outline, but that's my mistake, presumably. That is how the righteousness of God is revealed. Because verse 18 of chapter 1 is explaining the end of verse 17, which is explaining verse 16, which is about something new. That is the gospel in which is revealed the righteousness of God. Come with me just across to chapter 3 and look there at verses 19 following. Now we know, 19, that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in, the sight of the, by observing, in his sight by observing the law. Rather through the law we've become conscious of sin. But now, and the word but is important because it's something different than just our condemnation, and the word now is important because something new has happened, but now a righteousness from God, apart from the law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe there's no difference. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. See, the world does not at the moment look like God is just because people are sinning and not being punished. People like you and me, apart from them out there, we are sinning and not being punished. So how is God just? God is putting off the justice. He's putting it off. He's putting it off. But to put off justice forever means there's no justice. Where do you see the justice of God? Well, I see the kindness of God in putting it off, but the justice of God, the righteousness of God, ah, now something new has happened. Now, Jesus Christ has come into the world to bear the sin of the world. Jesus Christ has come in the world and in his death on the cross he took upon himself the condemnation of us all so that in his death God is able to be just to see the punishment for the sins of the world and also to justify the guilty to bring pardon and mercy and forgiveness to people who deserve to be punished 
but for whom Christ is punished in their place. And so we can see in the death of Jesus the righteousness of God, the justice of God. That he who is kind enough to patiently bear with us in our sinfulness and not punish us when we deserve it, is also just enough to pay the penalty for sin so that he can forgive the guilty. The wrath of God is seen in the sinfulness of the world. The kindness of God is seen that he hasn't brought this world to an end when it deserves it. The righteousness of God is now seen in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can be forgiven. That kindness of God is the time opportunity, is the window of opportunity available for us to repent. And that righteousness of God means that when we repent, we don't just hope that we will be forgiven, we can know not only that we will be forgiven, but that we are already forgiven, for the price has already been paid. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your kindness to us in not punishing us when we deserve it, nor even as we deserve it. We thank you for this, Father, that in this world that you have given over in your wrath to its sinfulness, we can see your kindness, that you are putting up with our evil. And we thank you, Father, especially because we can see in this kindness of yours the opportunity to repent. We pray, Father, for each other that everyone in this room may know of this repentance. And we pray it especially, Father, because we can see in your gospel the forgiveness that you have won to those who turn back to you. We praise you that the Lord Jesus has paid that penalty for us that we might be forgiven. But we also pray, Father, for those others, our friends, our family. We pray that they too might hear the message of your kindness and the message of your son's death and your righteousness, that they too might repent while the opportunity of your kindness provides it that they too might come to be right with you because of your son's death on their behalf. So give to us, Father, the boldness to speak to them, to call on them to repent, that they might find mercy as we have found mercy. And uphold, Father, the preachers of your gospel with patient perseverance to speak it truthfully and to call on the nations to turn back in repentance to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the talks on philipjensen.com. Please check our copyright page before recording or reproducing any material on philipjensen.com.